shopping for furniture sucks. It, you know, getting it delivered to your home takes forever. And then there's all these delivery fees. Uh, there's gotta be a better way to make furniture and sell it to people online um, and then get into their homes more conveniently. And so we just started doing some research into the space and fell in love with the opportunity. The furniture is over a hundred billion dollar market in the US alone. Um, it's super fragmented and there's just not been a lot of innovation. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chatted with Stephen Cool, co-founder and CEO of Burrow. Burrow started out by making beautiful, modular couches that come in easy-to-carry boxes that more or less snap together without tools. They have since expanded their product line to carry all types of intelligent furniture. You can basically buy your entire living room on their website now. It's an awesome company, and Interplay is proud to be an investor. Now, Stephen shared a ton of great insights in this conversation into the world of manufacturing, which includes some of his crazier founder stories. If you're building a DTC business or a company that relies on manufacturing, this is absolutely worth a listen. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Spoke. Spoke is a full-service outsourcing firm providing high-quality, low-cost solutions for all types of operational and back-office functions, including customer service, data science, HR, and supply chain management. They help companies scale their operations while keeping down their costs. If you're interested in learning more, visit gospoke.co. Steven, great to see you, buddy. Thanks for being here today. Mark, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Uh, would you mind giving us a quick overview of your background? Yeah. How far back do you want me to go? I don't know. Whatever you think is relevant for the story, but like the 30-second, one-minute version. Well, I was born in the small town of... No, <laughs> I, did, I grew up in, in Syracuse, New York. Um, spent a couple of years in Raleigh, North Carolina when I was uh, very young and then moved back to Syracuse, probably the only family that did that. And then went to Cornell for my undergrad. I rode crew there, which took up most of my time, um, and then studied finance, got a job in 2009 when I graduated. By the time I actually graduated, that job was no longer there. Um, and so kind of bounced around at a couple of places, started a small business in educational consulting with a friend of mine, um, and then finally landed into strategy consulting a couple of years later at Accenture. Um, did that for a little bit, then went to a place called Common Fund Capital, which is a private equity venture capital fund of funds, and then business school. And business school is really where I started my current career, which is starting the company Burrow. That's awesome. You want to go ahead and give us an overview of Burrow? Yeah. Burrow is the only interesting part of my uh, professional experience, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's pretty uh, interesting. So it is interesting. So what do we we like to say at Burrow, we make it radically easier for people to settle into their homes by designing innovative furniture that makes everything about furniture, from shopping to shipping to living to moving, more convenient. Um, and we you can find us online at burrow.com. We have one showroom in Soho currently. We're gonna open a dozen more over the next three years. Um, and yeah, that's what we do. Why did you create this company? I mean, you know, and you listen to your narrative, your background, 
you know, you're kind of, you know, went to good school, worked in finance, and then started furniture company. How did that happen? At the very beginning of business school, I took entrepreneurship. And as for, for that class, you have to start a company or you know, start the idea for a company, make a, make a pitch deck, make a business plan, etc. At the beginning of class, the professor holds up a, a deck for a company called Jand, um, which stood for Jeff, Andy, Neil, Dave, which eventually went on to become Warby Parker. I know you know that company very well. Um, and professor, the professor said, Hey, you know, you could work on a company that's fake or your company could turn into a real business. Like, like what happened with Warby. Um, and so my co-founder Kabir and I were both in the same class. We had gotten connected through a mutual friend. My, one of my best friends from high school went to college at McGill with Kabir. Um, so she got us in touch and we were in the same class and we were brainstorming a bunch of ideas. Furniture seemed to be a huge opportunity. Um, we were kind of looking at the rise of Casper at the time and direct-to-consumer mattresses. And we thought, you know, furniture in general is painful. It's not just mattresses, but shopping for furniture sucks. It, you know, getting it delivered to your home takes forever. And then there's all these delivery fees. Uh, there's got to be a better way to make furniture and sell it to people online um, and then get into their homes more conveniently. And so we just started doing some research into the space. and fell in love with the opportunity. The furniture is over a $100 billion market in the US alone. Um, it's super fragmented and there's just not been a lot of innovation. And so that just really attracted us. And also the idea of making a physical product brand is really appealing to me. And in consulting, I'd always found... And Kabir agreed. He was kind of the same way that he had previously been a consultant. That if you're... No matter how cool the project was, if the if the actual physical product that the company was selling was boring, I wasn't that interested in it. And I had done this really cool operating model redesign for this huge um, business that made basically like the infrastructure for for data centers. And like I couldn't get that sentence out without putting myself to sleep even though there was a lot of really cool, interesting work going on behind the scenes uh, from a, like a management and, and org structure perspective. Um, and so, so I always liked working on physical products you could just go and talk about with people. So um, it started out as that was the interest in it. And then over time, it's grown for me because I really get jazzed up in the morning about coming up with ways to solve problems for people and incorporating that into a design process. Um, that creates unique, innovative products. Um, and it, it's just something that you know you see the tangible results when customers get your product in their home and they discover these little you know convenient or functional benefits of the product and then come back to you and say, like, "Oh my God, I discovered this other little thing that's so cool about this coffee table. Um, that's what gets me going. And I never would have thought that previous previously in my life. In fact, if you had told me, entering business school that I was going to be selling furniture anytime soon. I would have been like, okay, I don't know what happened. Maybe I got kicked out of business school and you know, lost all my money and I'm selling furniture now, but I can't imagine doing anything else now. But you, you brought life to the industry. I mean, um, when I think about the innovation of furniture, there's exceptions, obviously. A lot of it's just been around design, aesthetic changes. You guys went to a whole nother level. You changed 
functional characteristics, attributes of the products. How did you guys go from being in a class, um, hearing the Warby story, and it's fascinating to continue hearing how much generational impact Warby has had on the kind of you know the Northeast New York tech scene, which is awesome. They have a lot to be proud of. You came out, uh, you got this, you got kind of in the class, you had the bug. How did you get from that to furniture is a big market to let's do something really interesting? What was the what was the idea? How, how did you put this twist on this? Well, it, it, it started with Kabir and I being actual customers in, in experiencing the pain points ourselves. So we were kind of uniquely qualified to, at least, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to say solve the problems, but at least uniquely qualified to identify the problems. And so were a lot of the students in our, in our class. I mean, normally they say, don't create a business for your business school classmates because business school students are a very unique, small subset of the population. It's not a normal, it's not a representative sample of any large group. Um, but in this case, it was because it was people in their late 20s, early 30s who were entering that next phase of their lives where... They're not just buying Ikea or the cheapest furniture possible. They want nice stuff, but they have all these rising expectations about what it means to buy products from the internet. Um, And you want there to be, you know, you don't want to wait for delivery. You want it to be convenient. Um, You expect more out of your your products. Customers are becoming, or consumers in general, becoming more pragmatic. Um, They want to know that there's real value built into the products. Um, And so... You know, we had these same expectations and we identified the pain points of, of buying and receiving furniture. Um, and so we actually did have this unique perspective of like, well, why can't we solve any of these things? And, it, you know, we also recognize that making furniture is not rocket science, right? Like it's, it's, it's a physical product that you can, there's ways to make it work. We fit, you know, we kind of thought we can figure out how to take a sofa break it up into you know, different components that ship in different boxes that the customer can assemble at home. Like, can we engineer it ourselves? No, but I'm pretty sure we can hire somebody and describe what we want and have mm-hmm. them make that and work with them on creating you know, a product that, that fits the consumer experience that we're trying to, to, to deliver on. Now, why was taking a sofa and turning it into kind of pieces that you can almost snap together? Why was that such a revolutionary, important concept for the supply chain, for the customer experience? Why did it matter? So furniture is big and bulky, right? Like a whole sofa. If you buy a sofa from, I'm making it up, Crate and Barrel, um, it goes, it's not being made by Crate and Barrel. It's being made by one of their contract manufacturers. Um, Crate and Barrel probably didn't even design it. They just went to a factory that makes sofas and said, you know, do you have something that looks a little bit more like this latest trend that we've seen in the market. Um, and then they buy that sofa, it gets manufactured, and then it gets shipped in a container from wherever it was made, whether it's Mexico or Vietnam or China or whatever. Um, and it gets shipped to um, a warehouse in the US and you can't fit that many sofas in a, in a container because again, they're big and bulky. Then it sits in that warehouse and then ships to the local retail center. Um, and it's big and bulky still. And then they have to deliver it to the customer, which you can't just ship with UPS. So it takes longer. You have to use an LTL carrier. 
Um, and then, you know, you require signature on delivery or special insurance if they're going to come up above the second floor and customers have to pay for all of this, or they can pick it up in the store themselves, but who has a truck big enough to fit a sofa? Um, so it's just the entire model was built on this, like, how do we work around these big bulky pieces? And we took the opposite approach, which is how do you take that big bulky item and make it not big and bulky, like make it fit into boxes that can ship with UPS, which means we could make it anywhere in the world, pack more boxes into a, a container, um, which reduces cost, reduces the carbon footprint, um, warehouse it for cheaper, fulfill it for cheaper. Any 3PL could handle it. We don't have to build our own distribution network. Um, and then we can ship it with UPS ground shipping, which gets to the customer faster, is more convenient for them to, to receive because they don't have to take four hours off of work to be home during the delivery window when the furniture company says it's going to arrive. And then all we have to do is engineer it so that people can easily put it together I, you know, on their own, no tools. We wanted to do the opposite of the IKEA experience, right? We're not trying to optimize for the smallest box possible. It just needs to fit under the dimensional weight guidelines that we can ship at UPS. But after that point, all the optimization is, you know, how do you make this thing as easy and simple and intuitive to put together? Um, and then from there, it was... So, so that was the whole like operational business model. But then there's all these other benefits from it too, because, because we sell components. So meaning like, if you buy a three-seat sofa, you get three seats and then a set of arms. And together, it makes a three-seat sofa. We can hold less inventory and turn it over faster because you're just making the same components over and over again to make all these different variations and versions of the sofa. Um, so there's benefit there and then it's just way more convenient for customers. And then because we, we are engineering these products from the ground up, we can make them better, like more functional for consumers. So asking them again, what are your additional pain points? And one of, for, you know, upfront talking to a lot of our business school classmates, we learned that sofas are the oftentimes block the only outlet on the wall. And when people have to charge their you know, phones all the time, it was like, okay, well, why don't we just include a, you know, a charger in the, in, in the sofa, like an outlet? Um, and you can plug that into the wall, but then you don't have to like, you know, climb underneath the sofa to plug in, to plug in your real problem. Your phone. It is real problem. So these are like all That's minor things. And it's yeah. all that stuff that like when you see car commercials and they're advertising the cup holders of the Bluetooth, um, you're like, does that really matter? Like not really, but what that communicates is that this car manufacturer understands who you are as a consumer and understands where your needs are. And if they've got everything down to like the cup holder right, they must have the entire car right. And so those things actually do make quite a big a difference, I think, in the overall like furniture experience. So we are a company that actually listens to consumers, cares about what does comfort really mean? What does stain resistance mean? What does durability mean? Modularity, is this thing easy to move? Is it easy to receive? All of those things become really important as part of the overall package. And if you're going to build the best furniture brand of the future, you should incorporate all those different pieces into it, as well as providing you know next level customer service. Um, and we think that's that's a winning formula for building the next multi billion dollar furniture brand. You know when I when I hear the story of the supply chain. And you're talking containers not full and sitting in warehouses. I think all I really hear, to be honest with you, is cost. Right? Empty space in a container costs money. Sitting in a warehouse, even though it may not seem obvious, someone's paying rent for that square footage for that period of time. How much of a typical couch that we would go to buy at you know, any of the other stores, what portion of that price is really a function of 
shipping costs? It's all baked in there. So what is that? Well, so the last mile piece is not even baked in. So most furniture companies, if you buy their stuff online or in store, again, unless you are picking it up yourself, you are paying a couple hundred dollars to have that delivered to you. Right. So it's the price they quote plus a few hundred bucks. Yeah. So you always have to add a couple hundred dollars to whatever you're seeing at, at most furniture places. And then, but the piece you're talking about, the shipping and freight and warehousing and everything, it's several hundred dollars all in for like a $2,000 sofa probably costs $600 worth of logistics fees. And we can do that in for like half. Although, I mean, like lately, ocean freight has obviously skyrocketed, so it costs a lot for everyone. But um, yeah, relatively, we can save a couple hundred dollars, which is uh, which is allows us to actually sell the same quality sofa for the same or slightly less money, but then not actually charge anything for shipping. So better experience, lower price point, all in. Yeah. No exactly. brainer. And you guys started out with, go ahead. No, I was saying it should be a no-brainer. Right. <laughs> you guys started out with, um, with couches, obviously. You've gone far beyond that. Um, you're targeting you know, the whole living room. What, what, what other product lines have you rolled out, and where have been other areas where you found material innovation, whether they're noticeable to a consumer or not? So we've done the rest of the living room, which includes coffee tables, side tables, pillows, throws, rugs, credenzas, benches. Uh, wall shelves, um, and we're about to do the whole home. We were planning on doing it sooner, um, but as you mentioned, supply chain Vietnam, which is one of our major locations for manufacturing, has been shut down or was shut down for about four months this right. year, um, which made it difficult to get products made, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, so where does the innovation come from? It's the same process. And this is where I've kind of we, we've been honing this over time and, and just refining our process to make it crystal clear for everybody in our company, you know, what, what makes Burrow different? How do we approach making things different and better? Um, and it comes down to this process of doing customer research. So I'll give you an example. It's, it's, it's different for each product line. Um, but for, for, for wall shelves, for instance, we're looking into shelling and we do all these surveys and we do you know, small focus groups and talk to people. And people don't buy wall shelves in our target market because they're afraid it's going to destroy their wall. They don't know if they need to find the stud in the wall. They don't know if they have the right you know, wall anchors or screws to hang it properly. Is it going to rip out of the wall? They're going to lose their security deposit. How high do they even hang it? It's kind of a pain to make sure it's level. You know, there's all sorts of reasons that just go into this. And mentally, that's friction. And so you'd say, like, I don't like friction. I'm just going to buy something that's freestanding. But that kind of limits your options aesthetically. Um, and so we thought, well, what if we made wall shelves that include all the hardware you'd, you'd possibly need, and we make them the easiest to hang wall shelves? And the way that we did that was by including this like template poster that is the exact same size as the wall shelf unit. And you hang that on the wall because that you can adjust. It's a piece of paper. You tape it on the wall. You can adjust as many times as you want, get it level wherever you want it. And then there's spots for you to tap in these wall anchors that we give you. Then you take the poster down, put the screws into the wall anchors and hang the books. And the, the, the wall shelf itself takes like 10 seconds to put together. 
Um, and then you hang that on the wall and voila, you have a wall shelf that has not destroyed your wall and was super That's easy awesome. to hang. And it's modular, so you can do all these different configurations of it and whatnot. Um, but that was just for wall shelves. For rugs, it was like people want nice hand-woven rugs, but they hate how much rugs shed or that rugs are very difficult to clean. And so we're like, okay, how do we make hand-woven rugs in India where everyone else makes the high-end rugs, but use materials that don't shed and are easy to clean? Well, it turns out recycled plastics are the materials you need to use to do that. And it's a no-brainer then because it's like for the same price or better price, you can get our beautiful rugs that don't shed and are super easy to clean. But nobody knows it's made of recycled plastic because it feels super soft and like looks premium. So, you know, it's these different insights across different product lines, but we're just trying to like uncover what are those one to two key insights that we can build a standalone brand around and launch them all under the umbrella. It's kind of amazing this hasn't been done before. So much of this. Seems like if everyone was awake in the furniture companies, they would have been tackling all this. Well, the reason why they're not is because the people selling furniture for most of the industry are not the ones making it. And it's not like they're designing a bunch of things and going to them and saying, like, I want you to make this new concept or whatever. They're going back to them with like aesthetic driven things like make this coffee table that looks more like this, but it's still constructed the same way. And the manufacturers don't care how it's constructed because they're just getting paid for the product. They actually don't even care how it ships because they're not paying for its shipping either. They're just like, you tell me what you want, I'll make it. Um, and so there's not really a lot of cross collaboration there to say like, is this easy for a consumer to receive? Like, is it easy for them to put together? And if not, like, is it hard to make it that way? Or is that going to be super expensive? And so no one's having that conversation because they don't have to. Um, and so we're, that's, that's our point of differentiation. And we just have to hold ourselves to that standard with every new product that we offer. And when you guys launched there, it was in the e-commerce wave, mm-hmm. Parker, Bonobos, everyone, they had re, they had made e-commerce acceptable in the venture community. Again, they had kind of brought it back to life. It was a taboo word for a while in VC capital started flowing in e-commerce and any product that you can imagine was then being sold at a new company. We saw them all, and uh, the shtick was most of the comp- most of the new startups were just simply taking an existing product that was sold in a store, and they were moving it online, and optimizing for kind of delivery channel and cost of acquisition and getting the math right. That those models haven't been created as much value as companies like yours, which really caught our eye, because you were making a structural change into the fabric of the industry. By changing the way the products were made, cutting out costs, changing the whole experience of the customer, it was more than getting the same napkins you could buy at Best Buy via website, because that all get all get cannibalized and eaten up by Amazon. It became specializing in making a really awesome vertically integrated differentiated product set. And there's not that you know it's only a subset of the companies that came out of that vintage that have really achieved that. And those are the ones who are obviously breaking away from the group. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And it's true. I, I think it's, it comes down to how you approach building a brand. And do you approach building a brand from, well, what industries have not seen a winner, a D2C winner yet? 
which some people, that's kind of how they approached it, right? Like, well, we haven't right. sold shoes or something else online or something. So I'm going to launch this specific thing. Shoes is a bad example because Halbert's just IPO and is worth three and a half billion dollars. But yeah, that, um, <laughs> that worked out. But <laughs> you get the point. Um, versus for us, and, and I say this internally to our team all the time, like we are competing against furniture companies. That is who our like our customers are not thinking about toothbrushes when they are buying furniture. They're thinking about other furniture companies and other furniture brands, and so that's who we're competing with. So we we have to be better than them and create a differentiated experience from them. If some of our creative looks or feels similar to that of other direct to consumer brands, it's because we're appealing to the same customer. But that's okay because when they're shopping for our furniture. They're shopping for furniture. And so it's like, we got to take people out of the mindset of like, we're a direct to consumer company. We're not, we're a furniture company. Um, and I think that often gets lost definitely in the media. Media always talks about it. Like they'll say, oh, so-and-so direct to consumer companies didn't work out. Why do you think you'll be different? It's like, I'm not competing with them. They could all, they could all be successful or all fail. And it, it literally has no bearing on my, on my business other than maybe if they all die, then Facebook marketing becomes slightly cheaper. Right. <laughs> okay, but the, the one of the interesting things people don't talk about a lot or when they're new to the industry don't know is when we hear direct to consumer we're thinking about purchase online, receive product through mail. Mhm. But increasingly, it seems like it's very important for the direct to consumer brands to have showrooms, to have real life spaces you can walk into. Can you talk about how important that is for your business and why direct to consumer and e-commerce entrepreneurs should be thinking about that? So I, I think they should be thinking about physical locations if it makes sense for their product. And for furniture, I can say does matter. And, and apparel does too, right? Because like you want to try on clothes a lot of times, not every time. It is very easy to return clothes online. Um, but that does re re reduce friction by being able to try it on in person. Same is true for furniture. Some people just want to sit on the sofa, see if it's comfortable. They want to feel the fabrics. Um, it's a very tactile experience. And so by providing them that experience, that helps convert those customers. Now we don't think of it and we're not, you know, they're not walking out of the store with a sofa. They're still getting it delivered to their home, but it's just another way to interact with and experience our brand. We kind of view it as like, we want to create the best customer experience holistically for people, uh, which should include for some people, they want to chat with someone or text with someone or they some people just want to get on the phone and talk through space planning some people want to go to the store in person and see it and try it and some people who just are completely comfortable reading reviews and seeing pictures and videos online and in and, and, and buying it. um also knowing that they can return it if they don't like it helps but you know for a sofa it's pretty big we have a very low return rate I think partially because we do a really nice job, but mostly because it's you want to be pretty sure that you want this thing, right? If you forget to return it for two weeks, it's sitting in your living room. It's pretty big. Right. If right. you forget to return a t-shirt, you know, it's not the end of the world. Right. Okay. Um, but do you, when you think about your uh, showrooms, do you think of them more as a cost center or a revenue driver? Are they marketing for you? How do you bucket them psychologically? Because I think a lot of people look at those as expense. Yeah, we, we think of them as a revenue driver, um, but we try to build the economics so that they are profitable on a four-wall basis, meaning 
the revenue from people who check out in the store or on the phone with a with someone from the store who they you know if they went to the store tried it out and then had a schedule the call with somebody from the store later on it still counts as the store um but if the revenue from that offsets store salaries rent you know everything that's that's what our goal is and our store in soho does that and that and that's why we're planning on rolling that out to to additional markets we do also measure the overall lift though so for instance when we opened up our first showroom in new york city sales in new york city doubled even though at the time revenue only grew 50 percent everywhere else um in that in that span and so that would tell you okay they didn't all check out of the store but having a store makes you seem more legitimate people know that they can check it out they know that there's an actual physical person they can go complain to if something goes wrong you know there's just all these extra benefits from having a physical location where people are um even if they don't actually go to the store um, so we do measure the overall revenue lift from having a store in a certain market, um, and we will continue to do so. But we do also, at the same time, try to manage it so that, like, you know, this should be a marketing channel if, of sorts that pays for itself. And the only way to measure that is by actually treating it like it's, it has its own PL. Now, you mentioned uh, Vietnam shut down for a long time. I think a lot of people across a lot of industries know that, um, obviously, because of COVID. How else did COVID impact your business when the lights kind of first went out and a lot of the supply chains and everyone was panicking? What changed for you in a direct-to-consumer business? You know, initially it was really scary because we weren't sure that any of our products were going to be able to get made or fulfilled. Um, and then once it became clear that, you know, People are going to be able to keep the lights on in our, our main factory in North Carolina that produces a line, the lion's share of our, of our seating. Um, they were also making equipment for hospitals. So that was really nice. That they, so they were allowed to stay open even the very early, like darkest days. Wow. That was lucky. That was very lucky. Yeah. Um, and then everybody was just sitting at home, you know, still making money. Um, some of our customers were getting the stimulus checks from the government. Um, but for the most part, people are just staying at home. They're not spending money going out to eat. They're not spending money going out. They're not spending money traveling. So they're accumulating more wealth. And they are then acutely aware of any, any pieces of furniture in their home that they don't like or that they want to upgrade. And so the entire industry boomed. Now, this all happened. So for the first year of like first 12 months after the pandemic started, everyone in furniture looked good. Because you just wanted to buy it, especially in e-com. Every, like, people were just clamoring, who has stock of anything? I'll buy it. And so our, our business boomed just like everyone else's did. Now, I think we grew at a faster rate. Um, we were growing at over... I mean, we, we more than doubled two years in a row. Um, so that's, that was faster than we had been growing and also faster than the rest of the industry grew um, because we were uniquely positioned for this, right? Like, you're buying it online. It's delivered in boxes. You don't have to interact with the person delivering it. They're dropping it off like in your lobby or at your front doorstep. And then you bring it inside and set it up. So like we were a really, really, really great case for COVID. Um, but then the supply chain problem started. So there are all these, when everything shut down, there were material shortages, freight shortages, right? Everything started piling up and then demand skyrocketed. And then there became these massive backlogs where you just couldn't get anything made. And we're still dealing with it. And it's causing prices to soar. Um, 
Labor has gone up significantly, especially in the US. Um, raw materials have spiked. The cost of wood lumber has more than doubled. Um, foam has gone up by 30 to 50%. Our, even our fabrics have become more expensive. Everything has just gotten to be way more expensive and in short supply, which creates very real cost pressures. And then when ocean freight like quadrupled from where it used to be, all these pressures are that's what, this is what's causing inflation right now. How about on the demographic side? Did you see a shift in which types of demographics were engaging with purchasing online furniture when COVID hit? Did that change or it did change. There, the the average age of our customers increased. Um, so hmm. older cohorts. I mean, our sweet spot was and still is people in their mid thirties. Um, it's kind of like you know, thirty to forty-five is like our best customer range, and that kind of shifted to thirty-five to fifty um, during the pandemic because younger people were just more comfortable and used to buying online, and then you know other cohorts of people or other demographics were forced to you had to buy furniture online if you wanted to buy furniture at the end of, of the pandemic. And then once they experienced it and realized like, oh, hey, this is actually pretty convenient. I mean, those people aren't going back. And so what that did was cause this massive, massive increase in, in e-commerce conversion. So the percentage of furniture that's sold online is, I mean, pre-pandemic, I think it was like 20% and post is something like 30, which is mm. really a huge jump in like a year. That expanded the market. It expanded yeah, the market, so yeah. And so you're seeing those demographics continue to buy even after vaccines are out. And right, oh so. yeah, oh yeah, it had, that has not changed. We and we've been monitoring it. Um, it's just expanded it and kind of changed who our best customers are. There was also the impact of people moving. A lot of people moving to suburbs, out of cities, um, and when they move to bigger spaces, they have to buy more furniture, uh, which is great for us. So we saw like the average basket size increase. For us, because customers instead of buying on average a three seat sofa with a with a lounge or a chaise lounge or an ottoman, they're buying a five piece sectional or a six piece sectional, um, and so that's that's had a huge impact on us as well. People are just buying more furniture, like per per household. Now, I know you mentioned when you did your bio earlier on that you did um, you did some consulting work and you had started a small company, a bit small business before you kind of went to a professional career. But this is really your first large venture scale play. I'm sure it's been totally different. How did you find the kind of zero to one phase, the really early days of the grind when you were kind of putting your company together? What was that like for you? It was, it was really fun in the early days. Not that it's, I mean, it's still fun, um, but the, the early days are really fun because it was just kind of like, you just put out fires or jumping on opportunities or whatever. You're just sort of in reaction mode. Like there's this thing that we've got to do by next Friday or else we fail. Or we've got to like get this one contract signed or we've got to get this one investor to come in or whatever it is. Everything is like life or death, um, which you can't be, you can't have that kind of uh, situation forever emotionally and like psychologically, it would just drain you. Um, but in the early days, I mean, you're fresh, you've got all this energy and, um, and enthusiasm and, and it, it, it's kind of fun. Um, and one, it, it, and what we learned from that early on was you just have to be able to say yes, like we can do it to everything. 
Like there will be no shortage of challenges that seem like, well, sorry, this is it. You're just going to have to accept defeat. And if you just always say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to accept that. There's got to be a way to do this. There's always a way to do it, even if it's not scalable or sustainable or whatever. Like for right now, we can make it happen. Is there a story that comes to mind that kind of brings this to life for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's I mean, we have we have tons. But the one that that stands out the most is um, when we first started the business, we were producing in, in Mexico, this very small factory just north of Mexico City. Um, and we were preparing for shipping 15 ish sofas to the, to Brooklyn for a photo shoot. Um, some of those sofas were going to be delivered as pre-orders to customers. Um, but some of the sofas we just needed for the photo shoot, which was going to create, be used to create assets for our website, for our launch coming up that April. Um, so this was in, in December. And, uh, so, so we're down at, down in Mexico and, we have the, the the frames of the sofa made and they've, they've been upholstered, um, but the, the custom hardware hasn't arrived yet. But we said, you know what, like we, we have to ship this stuff out by Monday um, in order to make it to New York by the following Friday to be prepared for the next Monday photo shoot. But we said, okay, well, the, 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 the frames are made. We know how to attach the hardware ourselves. So if the hardware comes in late, We'll just air, you know, overnight it from Mexico to New York, and we only need like a small box worth of this hardware to finish off these sofas. We'll take care of that ourselves. Um, all we gotta do is box these things up. So Friday morning, we're like, all right, let's box these up and ship them out. Well, our box supplier gives us a call that Friday morning and says, "Hey, we're gonna be late with the boxes." And we're like, "Okay, how late are you gonna be?" And they said, uh, "About a month." And we were like, whoa, what are you talking about? I talked to you on Wednesday and we were on schedule, which should mean they were like made and on a truck here. Um, how are you just learning now that it's a month late? And they're like, I don't have to tell you, like, it's just, it's going to be a month late. So we were like, okay, we got to find boxes ourselves. Well, finding large boxes with the right corrugate, like thick, thick enough corrugate to how to, you know, safely hold sofa like seats is not easy to come by. Um, there was a, there was a actually a packaging factory across the street from us, um, across the street from our factory. So we went over there and we, we turned them down because their pricing was too high. And I said, Hey, if you can give us the right pricing or, or if you can make us these boxes for these 15 sofas, like we will go with you. We'll take the price you said you quoted us. That's fine. You want, you'll win our business. And they were like, we'd love to, but we're having our holiday party right now. And all of our excess boxes have been used to make a stage for like this band that's playing. <laughs> and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Um, like, just take, just take them off or like, I don't know, go prototype, make, can somebody make these boxes? Like, no, we can't. And we were like, okay, well, we have to make boxes. And so we're calling around all these places to find boxes. Nobody sells the right size boxes that we need. Um, so I was like, we can make the boxes. Let's just find someone who makes cardboard. And I, 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 I kid you not, I Googled cardboard like on Google Maps, search for it, and like a bunch of places in the area pop up. I'm having the CEO of the factory call all of them to see if any of them have the right corrugate for us. Finally finds one. Um, and I'm like, just send a truck there, pick up as much as you can and bring it back. We, we, we took this big sheet of wood and made a, a CNC routed the die lines for the boxes. So that way we could, which by the way, the CNC router wasn't big enough. So we had to do like half of a box and make two of them and like glue them together. And then we, once we had the cardboard shipped there, 
the, the workers were all done working. I was like, guys, I will buy you all a beer like, and pay your salaries myself like, if you just stay and, and make these boxes. And so we had these you know, box cutters and we have a giant trace and we're trying to carve out the die lines for these boxes to make them, which if you've ever tried to cut thick cardboard before, you know, it's, it's not easy. You're kind of like sawing it. Um, and so we made, you know, the 60 some odd boxes required to ship 15 sofas and stayed up all night, uh, in the factory, like cutting the cardboard on the floor. We finally get them all made and they're glued together. It looks like trash, but it, it works like the, the, the seats fit in there. Um, those moments aren't sexy, but they're what you look back on after, you know, you're ringing the bell, taking the company public, you're an old man. (laughs) You know, those are the moments. But so, so it didn't even stop there though. So we, we ship the stuff out and then, and, and then they get, they get hung up in customs. So then we have to literally like set, like bribe with gifts, the, uh, the FedEx team that worked in Laredo, Texas to take it off of the FedEx system, um, and put it into, so once it did clear customs, when we got the right paperwork sent, there wasn't enough time to like, to get it to the photo shoot in time and we couldn't afford to reschedule the photo shoot. And so it was either like pay for air freight, which we could not afford. That was like 15 grand or, uh, go by ground, which wouldn't get there in time. And the woman that we were talking to, uh, in, in Laredo, Texas, FedEx was like, we could hot truck it there. And we're like, I don't know what that is. And she's like, it's where these te- <laughs> small teams of people will take turns driving so they can drive for like 24 hours straight. They're doing things like small trucks and they, they could hot truck it from Texas to there, but we can't actually take it out of the system once it's in our system. And I was like, what do you, what do you like to drink? And she liked scotch. I was like, I'll send you a nice bottle of scotch. Please just like take it out of the system and just put it to the side of the road, like next to your facility. And I will, I will right. find a hot trucker to come pick it up. And as you can imagine, hot trucking systems are not like those companies are not like necessarily legitimate or, uh, super reliable. Like the website has like eagles and American flags and flames and it's like Joe's hot trucking. <laughs> um, and so we found one and they hot trucked it to Brooklyn. Um, and then something happened with the parts, the custom hardware arrived, but then it got, there was a snowstorm and that was going to get delayed to not make it in time. So we had to pay for the CEO of the factory who we were close with, um, to personally fly to New York city and bring all of the hardware in on his carry on. Um, and so that's how we finally got it. It all worked out, but it was just like, one thing after another, after another going wrong. And this was going, you know, this is all happening while Kabir and I are in business school. So I'm like stepping out of class to take a call with FedEx. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that's what it takes. That's That's what it it takes. takes. Yeah. And so it was like, if we can do that, there's not much we can't do. Like we can figure anything out. If we can figure out how to get these to to the US in time. And so that's another piece of this, right? Like you're dealing with manufacturing. Most people you know, coming from kind of finance backgrounds, consulting backgrounds, or the MBA program, they don't have a lot of manufacturing experience. But it's something that a lot of people need to deal with if they're going to run their own company. Do you have a set of tips, you know, top three, four, five things that you think entrepreneurs should know about manufacturing, things you learned along the way? I mean, you have to meet with a bunch of different manufacturers to you know, find the right one. We had to, I mean, we got lucky with our first one, but they were so small that within the first couple of months, we outgrew them. 
Um, and so to find our current largest manufacturer in North Carolina, we had to meet with over a dozen manufacturers in North Carolina and Mississippi and you know, all over the Southeast US. Um, so it just takes time. You got to meet a lot of people. Everybody makes promises that they can, that they cannot, you know, hold. And, and so it just takes time up front. Another thing is you need to be on the ground with them and send people from your team to check it and QC the products and track their error rates, their defects, fulfillment errors, et cetera. Whatever, whatever you can track, you need to track it with data and report it back to them and make sure you have a tight contract to ensure that you know, they're doing it right. Um, and I, I mean, ultimately, it's like, I don't know. I couldn't tell you how to make our sofa from start to finish, but I've been to the factories enough times where I can tell you parts in the process that are broken or not working and that need to be improved. Um, and that, or it could be solved with better training or better, you know, materials or whatever it is that they need. Um, so it's just, and you only, you only get that by going there and being in person. It's not to say you want, you know, once you have factories in as many places as we do, um, I haven't been to all the factories now, but we have teams of people that, have been to all the factories and go frequently enough that they are monitoring things and when things go wrong, they can kind of manage it and whatnot. Um, but it's not, I don't know. I, I don't think it's all that complicated. Factories all deal with the same issues. There's labor issues, there's efficiency issues, there's, you know, whatever, but you just have to go and it's just look for constant, steady improvement in managing them. Is there some sort of KPI or, Rule of thumb ratio for how many people you need per location. I think you need at least one to two people per factory or like group of factories. So, like in 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 Eastern Europe, for instance, we work with a group that acts as like an extension of Borough, and they're managing a bunch of factories that are making different products for us. Um, so you know they and they probably have a team of six people to manage five different factories um, over there. Versus in, in, in Vietnam, we have our own people on the ground and it's probably one person for every two factories um, versus, you know, some of the larger factories in like in North Carolina, we have, you know, probably two full-time resources that are working with them, um, sometimes on the ground, sometimes, you know, in, in New York, um, but they have calls with them on a sometimes daily, sometimes weekly basis. Got it. Got it. Now, I've always been super interested in how the psychology of entrepreneurship plays in with founders. Uh, and one thread that kind of comes up in a lot of these conversations that I've had on the pod is about the mindset of an athlete. Now, I know you're a super big skier. How have how has skiing and sports kind of played into your, you know, thinking as a founder? Yeah. So I think athletics in general are helpful it's not necessary obviously to start start a business to have an athletics background but it does teach you the you know the art of hard work and not not giving up and pushing through the pain um again you don't need to have experienced that in sports to appreciate it i think there's other you know opportunities in life to learn that um but yeah skiing you're spot on that was a big one for me not just regular skiing but um 
the first time I did a backflip on skis. So I used to do freestyle skiing. So think like jumps and rails and all sorts of dumb stuff that has caused me to have multiple concussions and shatter my kneecap and do all, all sorts of things that I really <laughs> regret now. Um, but uh, the first time I did a backflip on skis was fairly transformative for me and my mindset. Um, it's something I had seen many of my skiing idols do before and even some of my friends do, um, but I'd never done it. Um, I had done thousands of backflips on trampolines and diving boards, et cetera. And I'd been hitting jumps on skis for years, but, but this was new. And so, you know, the reason why it stands out to me is like, you can do all the preparation in the world for anything, but at some point you actually have to do it. You have to execute. And to commit for that, to do a backflip, you have to commit to it because if you don't, there are very real consequences. If you bail out of a backflip and then like as you're taking off the jump, you will land on your head and you could break your neck and die. Like there are very real consequences there versus if you fully commit to it, you may not land it, but you'll be fine because you'll fully rotate all the way around and you land on your feet ish and you know, you should be okay. Um, and the first time I did that, it kind of like helped me cross this threshold of like, I've seen people do this. I think I can do it. I'm going to do it. And the only way to do it is to fully commit to it, not dip my toes into the water and see if maybe it works out or whatever. Um, and I feel like that's true for entrepreneurship. It's like you do some preparation. Obviously, you have to prepare. But at some point, you just have to take action and do it, um, which sounds kind of like a Nike ad. But like, it's true. Like You have to just do it. Um, and and that's been that's changed how I approach anything in life where it's like you do a little bit of research, a little bit of analysis, whatever, and then it's like, okay, let's test and learn. Like we got we gotta go. I love that. I was I had a, a drink with a friend from business school last night. And we were talking about the psychology of kind of entrepreneurship in that business school era. I was out there trying to start stuff, and there was a moment where he had said he had asked me, he's like, Why do you think you can do this? And I was like, why wouldn't you think that? I, I realized, and we were talking about it last night, but I kind of recap, it's been a, long, a lot of years, that there's a lot of people who have tremendous talent and capability, but they just don't ever think they're going to do that backflip. They think it's for someone else. But they could just go and try, and if they tried, they'd probably nail it. And that psychological hurdle is a huge leap. Some of us don't think about it, some of us probably think about it too much, but have guts and do it. And other people just watch others do backflips their whole life. Thanks for being on today. It was awesome having you. Thank you for having me. It was awesome to have Steven on and to hear his story. A lot of little nuances and founder tips in there. This is where I ask you to help out the podcast. If you give us a star, a like, or whatever, other people are more likely to discover the show. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.